Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Marcus Gonzalez Hernando, who's an early career researcher, um, a teaching fellow at Bath Sociology and Social Policy, uh, and also a senior researcher at the Think Tank for Action on Social Change. And we're going to be talking about his new book, British Think Tanks After the 2008 Global Financial Crisis. So, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is a is a brilliant book, and it's an incredibly important uh, book given um, the situation in which we uh, find ourselves. Not just actually in Britain, but uh, I think um, across various uh, democratic societies that are interested uh, to know how policy gets made and what what um, the kind of policy positions we end when we end up with where, where they come from and, and how they're produced and. In that context, I think the book makes this really crucial contribution to help us understand um, organizations that are in some ways the kind of glue that holds um, the development of policy together. And the really obvious first question is, what got you interested in in thinking about, um, I guess, a kind of um, a sociology of, of policy and think tanks in, in particular? Um, that's a thanks. Thanks for that question. Um, I guess I started at first became interested in epistemic crisis, really. So, uh, one reason why I first focused on the economic crisis of 2008 in particular was because it was at the same time political, economic, and epistemic in the sense that the same people uh, who were seen not long ago as having failed to predict or prevent the crisis were the same ones who were called to try and understand it. And from that, I think there is an interesting link to be made between the fields of knowledge production and politics. And I think think tanks are a privileged conduit to try and trace those links. I mean, what what are we actually talking about here? Um, you know, what, what are the kind of crucial um, questions that, um, I think we should clear up, but also is, is, is an important part of the book, is, is what actually is a think tank. Uh, and you talk a bit in the book about how they might be kind of public intellectuals, uh, they might be kind of boundary crosses or uh, bridges, they might be institutions, we could see them as part of a public conversation. What, what are we actually talking about? Yes, uh, thank you. So there's a relatively old literature on the topic that dwells at length on issues of what defines a think tank, what makes it different from a university department, for instance, uh, what makes it different from management consultancy or other types of institutions. Generally, they tend to dwell around the issues of independence uh, on the one hand and of impact as well. Uh, what I And they end up mostly with typologies. What I try to do is to build uh, on a definition by Thomas Medvedz, uh, who is this uh, academic based at the University of San Diego, who argued that think tanks are boundary crosses. So they have one foot in academia, one foot in the world of politics, uh, another one, so to speak, in the world of economics and business interests. And they also have a footing in the world of media. And they cross these boundaries and they allow for actors from each of these fields to communicate with each other. What I add to that definition, and I use it in more operational terms, is that uh, for me, think tanks 
are organizations on the name of which or on behalf of which public interventions uh, in relation to public policy are made. So those could be blogs, tweets, etc. And one of the reasons why I came up with this definition, it comes actually from one of the examples in this book. So in one of the interviews, uh, one researcher told me that his organization uh, used to be more like a university department where each in each of the researchers would try and secure their own funding and would have their own research priorities. And now they're trying to move into a direction in which they were more like a think tank or a think tank proper, which meant that they would have a, a concerted view on policy, on policy issues. You, you sort of hinted at, um, I guess, the structure and the, um, the approach the book takes which is with four different case studies of, of, of different think tanks. Yes. And it might be worth introducing those because uh, like immediately as you, you sort of give that example, um, I was kind of immediately thinking which, which one of the four is it that, you know, used to be like university departments and is now a kind of, you know, uh, policy uh, orientated uh, institution. And of our four, we've got, uh, the New Economics Foundation, the Adam Smith Institute, the National Institute for, uh, for Social... Is it the National Institute for Economic and Social Affairs? Is, is that NISA? Uh, National Institute for Economic and Social Research. Social, social research, research. yes. Um, and Policy Exchange. So it'd be great if you could say a little bit about uh, each of them in turn. We're, we're going to do a lot of you know detailed discussion. Um, mm-hmm. Particularly, I think, about why 2008 kind of mattered um, to them as, as your choice. Okay, sure. So I'll start going over each of the four think tanks. Uh, so the first one is the New Economics Foundation, which is center-left think tank, which uh, started in the 1980s and uh, has a reputation for trying to link policy areas, mostly environmental issues, well-being and uh, non-mainstream approaches to economics based on the work of Schumacher. And uh, they're mostly funded by uh, charitable trusts. Um, obviously, uh, for, the, for a think tank with such a profile, 2008 would, would have been an interesting uh, juncture to look at because it provided them an opportunity to try and disseminate their narrative that the economic system is ultimately uh, unsustainable. Uh, the second one was uh, the Adam Smith Institute, which is a really famous organization. Uh, they are strongly linked to the rise of Thatcherism in the 70s and 80s, and uh, they are very strong advocates of. Uh, a small state, as small as possible, deregulation, uh, voucher systems, uh, yeah, as little redistribution as possible, etc. Based on the works of Friedman, Hayek, uh, certain Adam Smith, and public choice theory mostly. Uh, These, they were also interesting to look at because the Dwarzen Lake crisis could uh, was initially interpreted as a failure of markets, as a failure of capitalism. So they had an interest in trying to defend this, defend this discourse. Uh, the third was NISA, as you said, the National Institute for Economic and Social Research. And they have a different profile. So they, uh, they date back to the 1930s. They're an interwar 
organization initially and what they around the era what the budget economics discipline was doing back then was trying to uh, provide a new um, a new science of governance what can say and so the they've always attempted to highlight as much as possible the scientific character of their work however as time went on uh in later decades they were seen by uh some of the uh, some of those who didn't agree with their views as keynesian so they're in a strange middle point between being purely academic but also having links to policy a many of the people who have been seen senior managers or directors or members of the board at NISA have strong links with the cabinet office, the Bank of England and other regulatory agencies of British economic policymaking. Uh, so obviously also they were very interesting to look at to see how uh, as a proxy to how the discipline of economics reacted to the crisis and this, yeah, this crisis of epistemic authority of economics as well one could say, and also because of the fact that they produce their own econometric forecasts. So uh, their interventions were not only in that sense in the form of opinions, but also in the form of numbers. And the last one is policy exchange. This is a bit different to the other think tanks. Uh, what's distinctive about them is that they are strongly linked to a the modernizers wing of the Conservative Party, or at least they were back then. And their original raison d'etre was to provide a sort of right of center expertise on areas that were generally not covered by the rights, such as education, uh, social policy, policing, etc. And uh, as a think tank that was strongly linked to David Cameron, who was uh, set uh, to yeah to do very well in the 2010 election. Uh, they provide a good window onto the, I guess, one important conduit of, yeah, how knowledge about the crisis is framed by those who have a very strong political uh, position and a political interest in, yeah, in taking those, yeah, in taking that knowledge to fruition, basically, and trying to justify policy decisions through, through uh, the mobilization of knowledge, if you will. I guess each of them has a different story of sort of stability and change um, in uh, relationship to, to 2008. And you've kind of hinted uh, and given sort of brief introduction there about the three uh, case studies and then the slightly different uh, story that comes with policy exchange. And it, it's probably worth, as the book does, just just take each, each of them in, in turn. And if we start with NEF, you know, you, you've mentioned... In some ways, it's strange because 2008 should have been NEF's moment, really, to say economics has failed. Uh, certainly, the you know the approach to kind of financialized capitalism underpinning uh, the global economy before 2008 has also demonstrably failed. And yet, I guess NEF's story is is a kind of a story of missed opportunity um, in, in terms of both. An intellectual project, but also in, in terms of uh, practical outcomes. Like certainly, um, thinking back over the last decade, you'd say that virtually nothing that NEF, um, you know, was hopeful for has come to pass. 
Yes, uh, I'd like to qualify that though because uh, just Neff could arguably um, be said to be the think tank that came up with the idea of the Green New Deal. Uh, the, and he, they did that around 2008. And as you said correctly, around that time, very few people really paid attention to the argument they were making. Um, I guess one of the main reasons, uh, there are reasons that are both institutional, I guess, and intellectual. Uh, one important intellectual reason is that they were arguing for degrowth around that time, a time uh, of depression, obviously. So the argument being that... Uh, it's the, the economic model is unsustainable and that uh, it is impo- anyway it would be impossible to sustain infinite economic growth which is defined in exponential terms in a finite planet however at the same time we're going through a recession and uh, the main response from the mainstream left, at least, is generally Keynesianism, which tries to bolster growth. So the Green New Deal was in some way an attempt to to overcome this tension between the degrowth paradigm and the need for uh, economic stimulus. That's where the Green New Deal comes from. However, uh, the NEF was obviously uh, part of British policymaking, and the discussion was going elsewhere for many reasons. And they saw that the official discourse that was dominant both in the media and in politics uh, was more gearing towards austerity. And uh, it's quite interesting to see what they did around 2011 and 12, because I think that whilst they were criticizing what the government was doing, uh, at the same time, one could feel that there was a certain uh, detachment, I guess, from a lot of what, the, what, what was going on in the water policy debate. So, for instance, they released a report on the national, proposing a national gardening leave. So, basically, for people uh, to get enough, uh, days off work to tend to their own gardens, which was completely uh, out of kilter with what the mood was back then, uh, but which they conceptualized as something that seems radical. Uh, but at the same time, it's ultimately the kind of thing that we need. Uh, but this kind of detachment from the policy debate, I think, shifted a bit around 2013 when they started producing first a series of reports and blocks called Mythmasters, which tried to address and uh, undermine the main myths as they saw them that justified austerity. And more importantly still, uh, what they did afterwards with uh, a report entitled Framing the Economy, where they, where they argued that some of the arguments that they had made before, so for instance, that uh, austerity hurts people, could even reinforce some of the f- underlying frames of austerity. So for instance, that austerity uh, is effective. So if it, the fact that it hurts doesn't really undermine the frame. Would you say that were pessimistic or, or sort of optimistic it's it, it's interesting you pointed out both you know in some ways a kind of a triumph for Neff's thinking but also the the barriers they came up with in in terms of um you know trying to be critical and yet at the same time seemingly like you know possibly kind of reinforcing 
why parts of the right were so keen on particular policies, as you, as you say, like like austerity. And and one one of the the ways that that the book does this is to try and bring out some of the personalities. And and I ask that kind of you know optimistic pessimistic question because um, Neff is you know. It's a structural story. It's an institution, but it's also a story of kind of key personalities as well. You know, one of whom ended up, I guess, being optimistic and being involved in the contemporary Labour Party, and then the other one being maybe slightly more pessimistic. Yes, yes. Um, so I guess initially, as I was looking at the reports, I thought that they were both at the same time, really. So in many ways, they were pessimistic about the current economic system. Uh, basically arguing that it was unsustainable, uh, but that in the end, just by the mere fact that if we don't change, uh, things are going to uh, just stop working, that we'll, we'll be basically forced to change. So there's, I guess, a dualism there, which is both apocalyptic on, a, on one level. I remember they produced a a short pamphlet called uh, Future News, in which they basically uh, were predicting what kind of things were going to happen to the climate in 2030, uh, which was, yes, a very apocalyptic read. Uh, But at the same time, they have an utopian element in that because of this looming apocalypse, we will be forced to change in some way. Uh, But as time went on, I think that the... Uh, pessimistic side, as you said, tended to become a bit more prevalent and um, it tended to become ever more central. And as you mentioned, one of the figures of the uh, New Economics Foundation ended up working for the Labour Party, actually, and informing their economic program. And um, yes, there was definitely also a, a part of them also attempted to create a new network called Neon. Uh, you might have heard of them. That um, tries to connect people working from in different parts of uh, the policy landscape in the UK. So, um, so that includes charities and includes campaigning organizations, uh, people working on social policy and the environment, etc., and trying to articulate a more um, a more positive argument for uh, yeah that sort of undermines auster- to undermine austerity and try and supplant I guess the frame uh, yeah the more pessimistic frames of the economy that they see as pervasive elsewhere I guess I suppose the really big contrast to Neff is the Adam Smith Institute yes. Who- You'd sort of assume would have been, you know, challenged by two thousand and eight. The, you know, the kind of the argument for deregulation, for you know, the free market, uh, forms of financial innovation. You know, you'd assume would be pretty kind of rocked or, or you know, in in, in some cases, kind of destroyed by the two thousand and eight financial crisis. And yet, the Adam Smith Institute, um, you know, in some ways, kind of doubled down. And said, no, this isn't a crisis of markets. And at the same time, actually was changed a bit by it as well. Yes, absolutely. So 
uh, my initial intuition was that at least in the first stages, they would try and downplay the magnitude of the crisis. And indeed, that was the case. But you can find that in one or two interviews with uh, senior figures here and there around August and early September 2018. Afterwards, uh, as you said, they did find a way to try and reframe the crisis as a crisis of the public purse and of uh, overseller's regulations and moral hazard. Um, I argue throughout that chapter that that has to do, on the one hand, with the fact that uh, being the discourse on free markets, something that cannot be proven or disproven, really, and that in the world there's always something that could be could have been said to intervene on the proper function of the free market that allowed them to have a a way in, basically, to argue that, for instance, the, the mere existence of a central bank uh, opens the possibility for for malfunctionings in the market that which left to its own device to its own devices should be fine. So, as you said, yes, there was definitely a shift in the Anderson Institute, particularly, I would say, around 2012, uh, when they started hiring a new cohort of people and they tried to expand a lot of their focus. Uh, it's difficult to trace a lot of, where the, obviously, where their funding, funding comes from, but also the volumes, but it definitely you can tell that there was an expansion around 2012 where they brought in a new generation of people uh, interested in in yeah li- libertarian economics or yeah Austrian economics and what I found interesting about it is that it generated some internal tensions particularly between uh, those who call themselves breeding hard libertarians who basically make the argument that the reason why they support free markets is because they produce the best outcomes for everyone especially the poor I suppose as opposed to arguing for free markets because uh, they provide the greatest wealth overall or because they're the right thing to do uh, in abstract. So there were consequentialists as opposed to rights-based libertarians. And that created some internal tensions. You can see, for instance, in the blog Libertarian Home that uh, there were tensions both within the Anderson Institute and between the Anderson Institute and the broader free market movement. I mean, in some ways, and this isn't to be uh, dismissive of either the importance of, of, of NEF or the importance of the Adam Smith Institute, but they, are, I guess, are kind of moderately predictable in yeah. terms of the uh, reaction to, to 2008. And, and in some ways, although there were these uh, important, you know, kind of challenges uh, that the financial crisis throws up, Really, the you know the kind of um, on the one hand you know sort of opportunity of uh, challenging the uh, economic system. On the other hand, the challenge of, of having um, free market uh, ideologies, you know, uh, potentially sort of debunked by by a live case study. Both organisations sort of took these in in their stride, really, and you know, and there are important internal tensions and, and changes as you mentioned. But but more interesting, perhaps, are the other two. Um, NISA and what we might think of as a kind of a crisis of expertise and how um, expertise is thought of and then policy exchange and in some ways a kind of a a crisis of of ideology almost. 
Yes, yes. It'd be good to hear about Nisa's, I guess, kind of changing role, uh, both in terms of its relationship to the state, uh, some of the individuals involved, and th- and then I guess the, the, the tricky question of how Nisa brands itself uh, and how expertise is branded at a point where seemingly expertise has got us into this mess in the first place. Yes, yeah, that's a very good one. Uh, so Nisa, uh, as I said before, had a very long tradition of strong links with uh, e- economists working in different branches of the government. And uh, when the crisis hit, they had a very strong, mostly academic profile. They were mostly funded by the uh, ESRC and uh, independent contracts by government departments. So they were also hit by austerity in that respect. So something interesting that happens in at NISA is that they have a very different profile before 2011 and after 2011. So what happens then is that basically initially, almost by default, without them even looking for it, their work becomes more central and, get, and gets more attention because, uh, first of all, uh, they are the ones producing more or less uh, authoritative uh, data on when the economy would, for instance, get out of a recession or how bad the recession was. And they were also the first to produce uh, uh, produce economic advice on what government policy should go. They were also, and this is a tradition in their part, but both critical of Labour governments and of the Conservative plans ahead of the 2011 election. So they were put in a strange middle point uh, around that time, and their directorship was mostly academic. However, in 2011, uh, their director left, and a new person came in who had a more uh, a different view of how the how to engage in the policy world. So this is the think tank that I was mentioning before that for one of the researchers looked more like a university department. Uh, where there was more of a disaggregated focus on different areas of the economy without an overall narrative. Uh, And when this new director came in, they tried to become more like a think tank in the sense of having a concerted uh, image, a concerted brand, and a more or less unified message on what uh, policy should be. So they started intervening uh, in relation to uh, government uh, economic plans. They were very critical of the yeah of austerity measures. They based their critique mostly on arguing that the main justification for these cuts was a discredited theory in economics entitled expansionary fiscal contraction, which they saw as a minority view, and also trying to undermine the argument that low guilt yields so. Uh, of government bonds, uh, what meant basically that uh, the, that uh, there was um, confidence in the markets that uh, of the government plans. Uh, this in the context of uh, the eurozone crisis as well. So, uh, as they were making these points in the public domain, they were often attacked by political opponents, uh, mostly on the right, of being Keynesians. And something that I find very interesting about uh, them is that at some point they argue uh, 
that is almost as if you called a physicist a Newtonian. Yes, in some sense, we all are Keynesians, but, uh, but the conversation has moved on a bit. So they think of Keynes more as a scientific rather than as a political inspiration. Uh, so, yeah, that was the tension they had to navigate. I suppose it, it put them in a strange position, really, uh, which is maybe, I mean, you, you know, you, you draw uh, loose comparisons with things like the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Um, you know, the, these other, I suppose, experts uh, and almost kind of like uh, umpiring uh, organizations. And this is in real contrast to to policy exchange, who in, in some ways are maybe the most uh, interesting uh, think tank, or at least are, are interesting in the same way NISA is, but for very different reasons. And that's because the story of policy exchange really is a story of a moment of kind of renewing and transforming conservatism that 2008 effectively kills Stone Dead and leads them to um, less compassion and much more kind of punitive ideas. Or have I read that wrong? No, no, I think you're spot on. <laughs> uh, so uh, Post Exchange uh, was founded in 2002 initially by conservative MPs who thought that uh, the think tanks from that political sector were thinking Center for Policy Studies, Institute for Economic Affairs, and the Smith Institute uh, had sort of reached the end of their shelf life, and they were from another era. They were, in a sense, a conservative response to the rise of Blairism and to the world works uh, kind of discourse and policymaking. And so they wanted to move their political sector away from having it too staunch and too ideological an image and try and portray themselves as both caring, liberal, and evidence-based. Um, also, because there was so much work on the right on issues such as uh, taxation, uh, deregulation, etc., they decided to focus on other areas such as education, social policy, etc., where they believed they could push forward conservative ideas in areas that were mostly neglected by the right. Uh, so they were also the place where I think David Cameron launched his bid to become conservative leader in 2005. Around 2008, I think the Financial Times released a piece where they argued, where they said that they were Cameron's favorite think tank. And it was also the place that published uh, Jan and Ganesh and um, Jesse Norman's pamphlets on the big society and compassionate conservatism. Uh, so yes, they were the platform that was producing the ideas of the mon- up for the modernization of the right. However, uh, as you said, come 2008, uh, the idea of no focusing on, on economics wasn't going to work anymore, uh, quoting one of my interviewees. And what they tried to do then is produce reports on that would try basically to put themselves somewhere in the middle between a more staunch Praetorian guard, I think they call them, uh, radical free market arguments, 
and the and the left. So they could say, yes, we do need to make some cuts, but they have to be somewhere in the middle. And then they started producing reports on where these cuts should take place. Because they had very strong links with the conservative leadership, uh, and after that, uh, friends in high places in government, after they were elected, um, they, they knew exactly where the arguments and the debates within the Conservative Party were happening, which allowed them to produce reports that were almost laser-targeted to try and have as much impact as possible. The story, I, I suppose, of um, the traffic between policy exchange, not just in terms of ideas, actually, but, but in terms of people uh, and, and the government, does raise, uh, I guess, lots of questions about the role of think tanks as um, you know, uh, participants in a public conversation. Um, and what, one of the things you, you talk about right at the end of the book is, is kind of how we might think about think tanks as moderators. Yes, that's and correct. I, I'm quite interested in that because I could see how that works really well with ASI, NEF, NISA, you know, kind of um, translating ideas, uh, influencing policy. But I guess policy exchange, because the direct traffic um, is, is more interesting. So maybe as a way of kind of concluding the discussion, you, you could talk about that that kind of theory of moderators and and talk about um, policy exchange as, as an example. Yeah, sure. So just to backtrack a bit, uh, I base this idea of moderation on Thomas Medved's argument about think tanks as working in four different social fields. And what I try to do with it is, like Medved's, I do argue that think tanks communicate different uh, spheres of society and that sense they moderate them in the sense both of uh, bringing two extremes so so to speak together but also vetting who is part of the conversation and I think policy exchange again is a great example of that but also what I try to do is to develop uh, Tomat theory by settling the idea of these social fields being completely static so I end up basically arguing that one of these fields, at least, uh, the field of academic economics, uh, was very discredited after the economic crisis of 2008, which meant that a minority position within that field, expansionary fiscal contraction, could be successfully mobilized uh, and brought into other fields. Uh, So basically, the argument being that those who moderate also shape the and frame the conversation that happens across different fields. Basically, the argument being that ultimately, at a point of epistemic crisis, that which is seen as reasonable doesn't necessarily coincide with the uh, economic consensus. How will that play out in future? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I think in the afterward, I hinted a specific risk that think tanks might uh, represent for for our politics, really, Um, which is that, just to put it in very blunt terms, a blunt metaphor, that we will start producing a research and expertise that is completely bound by a politics that is taken as a given. So, for example, we, we could end up 
with think tanks, and I think they already do exist, and there are reports on this, to try and give a veneer of expertise of an expert-like shape to ultimately a unreasonable politics. So, for instance, a policy expertise on Donald Trump's war in the, uh, in the southern border. Yeah, and, and I mean, th- this is, is one of the things, I guess, that the book is trying to do by looking at four very well-established um, and kind of um, well-known actors in the field to sort of, you know, uh, highlight the legitimacy uh, of think tanks, even as, you know, we're in a context where there is some incredibly bad behaviour by uh, by some, some actors. In, in terms of your own work, um, are you going to be doing further research on think tanks um, or... Uh, have you got other interests in sociology, social policy, um, policy studies, this this kind of area? Yeah, sure. So these days, I'm actually wrapping up a project which looks at the attitudes towards economic inequality of the top 10% of income earners in four European countries. So that's Ireland, Spain, Sweden, and the UK, particularly in relation to questions of economic redistribution and uh, what we could do to bring this population into the fold of progressive politics, so to speak, because they tend to be the population that is the least likely to support redistribution. And for whatever reason, they're also the population that is more likely to dominate the public debate. So after this project is done, I hope to actually bring together the two areas of my work and attempt to provide a some insights on the on the economic and socioeconomic background of policy experts and uh, the barriers of entry to the field of policy expertise to try and see how those barriers end up framing the kind of things that we debate in the public domain around these topics <laughs>